This episode is brought to you by Rocklink Investment Partners. The team at Rocklink, as we all know them and love them, does not support a woke Marxist WEF friendly cancel culture worldview. And they've created the Kokomo Fund. In light of bank accounts being seized and frozen during the Emergencies Act, or its former truer name, the War Measures Act, Rocklink can help you move your investments overseas based on in the Cayman Islands, the world's number one offshore market for investment funds. Give the freedom lovers at Rocklink a call, as many of our staff have, at 905-631-5462, or send them an email at info at rocklink.com. That's info at rocklink with a C dot com. So I looked at all that. I did the calculations uh, from scratch. I've published that. And um, what I found is the same thing that the first people who tried to do this found. And that is that you can double or quadruple the amount of CO2 on the planet in the atmosphere, and it will have virtually no effect on the mean surface temperature. It will be a negligible, really small effect, like half a degree or something. everybody, Michael Thiessen here, and today I get to speak with Denny Rancor. And uh, Denny, I have looked forward to this conversation for so long. I was just telling you backstage that we were supposed to meet uh, together for when we originally, Liberty Coalition Canada, put together the Professionals Against Lockdowns uh, Caucus. Uh, not, the, not the caucus, but we put together the uh, Professionals Group, and we weren't able to meet then. I'm so glad to be able to talk to you today. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, same here. It's a pleasure, Michael. So we have a a huge topic. Likely, you're going to have to come on the show a number of times to help us unpack this topic. But we need to talk about uh, climate and the climate alarm alarmism that's going on. And I'm going to set the stage here. I'm just going to quickly give everybody the context of our conversation. And then, Denis, you're the former physics professor. You're the scientist. You're the social theorist. I'm looking forward to uh, having you hash out this idea in front of us. So many people would say, I want clean drinking water. I don't want smog around the city that I live in. Uh, I can see breathing in pollution is likely not a good thing for, for my body. And uh, we do want to preserve or, or care for the, the world. So as a Christian, I would even have a doctrine of uh, creation care. You know, God has designed the, the universe and he sustains it. And, and if I model his behavior, I would be someone who would want to cultivate the resources of this planet without pillaging it and you know causing catastrophic failure so that's where i think the normal individual lives where now there's this tension between a pristine perfect non-touched earth by human beings uh, at being presented to us as the ideal Versus an earth where we live and we cultivate it and we care for it, but obviously a human imprint is going to happen. So we have these two worldviews being presented. And of course, the one 
uh, issue is everyone's saying, you know, the world is coming to an end because of climate change. If we don't change our behaviors as societies, we're coming to an end. So, Denny, I think our listeners really need to hear someone who wants to present the truth of the matter, the, the, the science of the matter. And I've been listening to your voice for quite a while. Can you please shed some light on this for our listeners? Yeah, with pleasure. It's a huge topic. I mean, the first thing I should say, and this goes back to the essay I wrote way back in 2007, and the essay was was widely read, was quoted at the Senate of the United States, and so on. And I, what I, the the main point of my essay was environmental toxicity, environmental problems are distinct from the CO two. They're two different things. The place where you have really serious environmental degradation are places. Let let's put it plainly. They're places where people are being exploited. So if a government or a totalitarian system or a large corporation is exploiting communities in an area, they tend to overexploit and they tend to leave, they tend to think of the environmental conditions and, and the environment in which people live as being completely secondary to their profit and to their interests and to their control. And that's where you get the hot spots of really massive and important environmental degradation. So you cannot disconnect concerns for the environment, actually where people live, their drinking water, as you say, and you know their, their, their immediate living conditions and so on. You cannot separate that from their social conditions and the terrible uh, political circumstances that they may find themselves in. If you travel the world and you look for hotspots of environmental degradation, they will all, virtually all, be in poor areas. And this is true even within the United States. You have a so-called Cancer Alley in, the, in, in Louisiana, uh, where you have a huge uh, chemical uh, corporation pollutions. All the refineries are all in the same place. They're dumping into the same uh, river. Um, um, and there's, there's huge uh, problems with living conditions there and high rates of cancer among the poor and so on. So environmental degradation hotspots tend to be where people are being uh, mistreated and are being uh, considered as unimportant in, in terms of their own quality of life. And, and that is true around the world and in, and in countries. It's true in Canada as well, where we know that uh, Aboriginal communities don't even have clean drinking water. So the first thing we have to uh, accept is that the notion of the environment cannot be made into one of these disconnected notions that's sanitized for us, where we think in theoretical terms about the environment. It's always connected to how people are being mistreated, how entire communities are being mistreated, how entire uh, territories are being exploited. I think we have to use that word, you know, um, that that's where environmental degradation occurs. So when the government or, you know, experts go on TV and tell us about CO2 and the planet, as soon as they use the word planet, you know that they're trying to sanitize it and they're trying to remove you from the reality of what's really happening because you, you can't, think in terms of the planet. The planet is just that, 
a planet. It's huge. It takes care of itself. It is incredibly resilient. It it bounces back. It it has forces. Um, if you you can have a, a terrible um, exploitation like clear cutting of entire forests, and the planet will bounce back from that when you stop the uh, the clear cutting and so on. So, you we have to stop worrying in theoretical terms about the planet. I know that it's good to think in big broad terms. Uh, about our place in the world and about the universe and the planet and so on. It's good to think about it in terms of our connectedness, but it's not the right place to start if you want to talk about actual environmental degradation. I think that's a fascinating point because if I look at the, the, I want to say the mantra, if I want to look at the repeated propaganda that's, that's coming out right now about climate action, it, it actually seems to be doing that very thing where it is saying it, it, it positions humanity as the problem. It positions um, individuals as the, you know, the end users being the greatest abusers and what it creates within us is not this idea of, okay, wait a minute, a company will treat the environment the very best way possible if it looks at the humanity, if it looks at the, the humans in the region and treats them uh, with the greatest amount of care. And so I think that's a really important point because, wow, it, the solution to any perceived problem here of course, has to be intrinsically linked to our inherent value. And I, I just appreciate you starting there because I see the opposite actually happening. You know, even in my own mind, um, you know, people often wonder, how do you pastor other people? And I just say, well, I just imagine, you know, the depths of my own depravity. And I just assume that they're thinking the same type of thoughts. So even in my mind, as we're looking at this environmental conversation, there is these little tweaks of dehumanizing individuals, these little tweaks of, well, okay, what if we, what if we did population control? Okay. What, what if, you know, senior citizens were, you know, conveniently discarded in order to get them out? Like what, what if, and what's really happening is we are being told a dehumanizing narrative which is exactly the opposite thing that we need, according to the statement that you just made. So we, we will do yeah, good for the environment if we're doing good for the people within the environment. Absolutely. I mean, the, the thing about uh, not polluting, it's, it's, really, it's really simple. If, if, if you want to uh, solve the pollution problem, then stop polluting. You don't have to talk about CO2. You don't have to talk about anything else. Uh, you look at the immediate actions that you're that you're taking and wh who it's impacting, and you stop. That's what it's about. So it's a political, it's a political decision not not to have completely uh, toxic rivers and so on. These are political decisions. Um, the other thing that's important is um, there's a, there's a component of self governance that's essential. Uh, communities that self-govern, that are responsible for their community and for their region, uh, are not are not polluted. 
and they have uh, they're able to adapt and they're able to have uh, you know all kinds of variety and the the environment is just great under conditions where people are not just uh, souls to be exploited but are are participants in a democratic process where you have self governance so the even the term population control is one that is uh you know, anchored in this kind of global planification scheme where you have a totalitarian system that decides what's good for the entire planet uh, rather than look at um, um, what is locally happening, where where are the, the, the really difficult points. And the difficult points include everything from war uh, to, and and often it's it's large scale exploitation, let's face it, I mean, go to the Congo or read reports of people who have been to the Congo uh, where you're strip mining and you're exploiting slave labor and child labor and so on. The environment is absolutely horrendous. And where that environment is horrendous, you have a low life expectancy and you have people living under horrible inhuman conditions. So those are the correlations we need to make in our mind. You cannot, we cannot talk about the environment as though it were a separate theoretical concept. It is connected to people, to politics, to exploitation, to uh, vicious treatment of other people by, by certain uh, groups that are more powerful. These are the things we should be talking about. Those are that, that, that's what it's connected to. And so the, the whole idea of making it about CO2 is scientifically absurd. Uh, and we can talk about that, but it's also a psychological um, scheme or or method to disconnect us from um, who who the culprits really are and who the victims really are and where where there are these true uh, environmental uh, difficulties. Yeah. Okay, so I appreciate that you've been careful to delineate between maybe what we would call local environmental responsibility. And we're talking, and I, I, those correlations are so powerful, Denny, the, the correlations of self-governance and, and the, the treatment of, of, of human, I want to say human value, humanity. Um, and then now you're, you're, you're saying, okay, but that is also a completely separate conversation about this CO2. So let's just get into it. Um, if I walk down the street today, depending on who I'm talking to, the world's ending in three weeks, seven years, 18 minutes. Um, and again, if I asked anybody, tell me what you've observed. And the, the observation is not many people would even be able to quantify any of their claims. So Talk to us about climate change propaganda. Talk to us about the, the, the linking this to the CO2 emissions and help us maybe understand the science as why is it being so poorly manipulated? Uh, why is it being used slash what is the real science? Oh, the science is being is not being poorly manipulated. It's being expertly manipulated. It's being constructed. I mean, one of the things we have to realize is that the scientific enterprise, government-funded science and corporate-funded science, is an integral part of the propaganda 
that and that's our environment our mental environment is this propaganda and the propaganda is not just what's on tv and in social media it's also how we're forced to behave at work it's how uh, we get promoted at work it's our entire environment is 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 also an integral part of the propaganda it's 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 an entire system i think to to uh, align us and control us and give us give us a, a view of the world uh, in which we will contribute to the project that they intend us to contribute to. So uh, the science is not this 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 pure thing of thinking independent people who are going to give us critiques at all. It, it's it's completely the opposite. It is funded project by project, and scientists do what is funded they 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 apply for the grants that are being offered and they do that research and then they know because they want to preserve their careers they know what to say and what not to say and they're interested in advancing their careers so science is not an answer it is a, an integral part of the machine that and this machine goes wrong when the politics go wrong and when the when when influential groups uh, acquire too much power and too much influence and there's no control mechanism in terms of democracy uh then you you're marching away towards this this very uh terrible system and i think we're seeing that now well science is an integral part of that you know um so um i, I got a bit off topic there but okay so what do people what do people see if you ask them that's another part of the problem because this propaganda mesh is so complete and so effective actually a lot of people will say that it's hotter now than it was in their youth even though there's no quantifiable way to verify that or to see it and when you do try to quantify it you do not see it so people will 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 actually come to believe that their experience is a certain thing based on the propaganda it's it's quite incredible it's quite incredible. So independent thinking people who have uh, a, a personal history of being a bit rebellious and independent thinking don't see that the weather is more severe now than it was. Whereas other people who are perfectly aligned uh, in the middle class of a professional job, they will, they will actually say that in their own neighborhood, uh, the summers are hotter now than they were before. <laughs> Whereas if you look at the actual record of 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 temperatures at the at in in the surrounding weather stations there's no sign of that and and yeah so the well as a scientist i can tell you i've i've looked into this a lot and i've written both theoretical uh, and and data analysis papers about this if you look at measured temperatures in let's say a thousand weather stations in north america and so on you cannot statistically detect that there is warming over the last 100 years and you cannot statistically detect a warming that is correlated with the use of fossil fuels that is it, that would be untrue if you're claiming that you're 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 lying now unfortunately uh, a lot of government agencies like nasa and so on they they continuously recalibrate the data in in the effort to show a small effect uh, you have to realize that t measuring temperatures in weather stations is a very difficult thing. It's a very subtle thing. Um, the measure, the temperature is varying dramatically day to night, uh, hour to hour, minute to minute, season to season. 
And what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at an average. So you're, you're averaging over the surface of the planet and you're averaging in time and you have these huge yearly and daily variations and so on. And you're trying to see that data and, and, and try to see if on average it's changing where at a given weather station, you're basically taking a measurement only two measurements a day. You're taking the maximum and the minimum temperature. So you're uh, so you've got the um, uh, typically at noon and typically at midnight and the, this kind of thing. So so you're taking all this data and you're trying to see this average. And then the problem is at a given weather station, you're th there's development occurring. So it's typically at an airport where the airport's getting bigger. There's more asphalt. There's less less trees around. They're they're expanding that locally changes the temperature. You get a, a heat island around it. So th this is a very significant effect. At the same time, the technology in the weather station is changing. They're, they, at, sometimes they don't realize the importance of radiation shields around the weather station. Then they realize them and they implement them, but not everywhere. And so there's all these effects and they all have to be corrected for. And they those corrections have a lot of uncertainty on them and um, the uncertainty is guesstimated, okay? And then they make these corrections in this way. So you can imagine a bunch of hired government professionals who are told that, you know, the paradigm is there is warming. And so if you're not seeing it, when you make these 20 or more corrections to the data, then you must be doing something wrong, so do it again. You know, you, you can see how professionally that works. And I'm in touch with these scientists. I speak with them and discuss these problems. And there are a lot of scientists who are well aware of the impossibility of doing this. And then there are a lot of other scientists who will write papers showing a slight trend historically after they made all these corrections. Uh, um, it's, it's absolutely bogus to think that you can detect a, 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 an increase in warming on the planet uh, by these the, kinds all of, of those, So I really appreciate how um, practical or uh, observable what, what you just said uh, is because I, everything you just said, Denis, makes perfect sense in the sense of I know exactly what it's like to be in an area where all of a sudden I'm surrounded by you know, I'm, I'm on a parking lot versus I'm out, you know, 150 feet away in a park. Um, I am, uh, open to a, uh, a water, a breeze off of the water versus I've got a major, uh, hedge barrier or force barrier between like, uh, we were just, just down at Niagara just, Falls. Just step, Michael, just step into the shade on a hot day. There's an immediate difference and clouds themselves create shade. So you can imagine the difficulties in trying to do this when you only Espe have hundreds of weather stations to go on. And especially know? if, especially if, you know, I've taken a hundred measurements throughout the day and I decide to only present to you you know, 78 of them at certain times. Like my, my point would be to just agree well, that, with you how another, easy it is to. That's another point is that they will, they will rate weather stations on which ones are most reliable or not. And so there, there's so many places where you can introduce bias. It's unbelievable. And when you try to compare with the historic record, there are even more problems because, you know, for example, if you're looking at, uh, uh, sea surface temperatures. 
Well, at first they were uh, pulling up water from the sea surface in a bucket and putting a, a, a thermometer in, you know, and then just the technology of what kind of bucket you were using, a cloth bucket versus uh, an insulated bucket changes the results systematically. And it just goes on and on. The more you look, the more you realize that in order to do this, to, 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 to calculate this average, it's, it's impossible. There is incredible heterogeneity from place to place and in time, and there's historic variation that is not controlled in the technology, in the habits of, of measuring and so on. It's impossible to do. So then there's a group of scientists who will say, oh, no problem, we'll use satellites now. We've been using satellites for a while. Let's measure surface temperature with satellites and, and get an average uh, from space. And well, the problems of doing that, you, you have to use uh, spectroscopic measurements uh, in, in the satellite measurement. The, the, the problems and corrections are many fold again. And so you've got a team of experts making corrections to the, spectra, to the spectroscopic data. And, 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 and how do you integrate it? And how do you correct for the fact that you don't have full coverage of uh, instantaneous coverage of the entire surface of the planet? How do you make all these corrections? And, um, so it becomes um, an exercise in pretending that you're not introducing any bias in producing this data that you're going to show uh, on the NASA website. You know, uh, it, it, it's I could give so many examples. Um, let let me, if you want, let me go to one example because this this happens a lot. Yeah. Okay. In Canada. In Canada, most a lot of people, because they listen to the media, will tell you that there are more forest fires than there used to be. It's completely incorrect. If you objectively look at and measure the magnitude and the size and the, the, the area extent of forest fires as a function of time, over the time of, you know, since, since the beginning, uh, since the 1900s, let's say, um, there are actually less forest fires now than there have been historically because we build roads and we manage things more. And so they're way less. There's, there's an actual fire deficit compared to naturally in nature what would occur. That's the first thing you notice when you actually look at the data. Then if you say, okay, but let, let, let's look more recently, um, is there really increases in fire? Well, there was an there was a, an important or an influential paper in the magazine Science, one of the top you know leading science journals that that claimed that they looked at forest fires uh, with satellites and they saw an increase uh, uh, in the amount of forest fires that correlated to the large increase in in use of fossil fuels. Well, but then when you looked into it. They were comparing measurements of forest fires from the days that you were trying to spot them with binoculars from towers to using satellites to then in the satellites. At first, they only had optical telescopes. Then they had infrared telescopes, which were are much better at spotting the fires in the underbrush and so on. And so they had a big increase in detected fires when they changed the technology on the satellites. They were they were melding all that together and finding an increase without making those corrections. And this is like a, a, a peer reviewed top journal that that article, which I have critiqued and I've written about, 
was very influential, has been highly cited. All the media kept referring back to it. And that was the scientific article that led us to this false notion that there are more forest fires now. Uh, it was a completely incorrect article that has been criticized by experts in the peer-reviewed literature where they pointed out that you cannot compare, it's like comparing apples and oranges to compare the detection of fires uh, using different technologies and so on, right? Um, the other thing you can do is you can look at uh, the extent and, and, and frequency of forest fires in the historical record. You can look at uh, lake sediments and see the deposition of, of carbon particles, of soot particles and so on from the fires as a function of time as these sediments are deposited. You can look at tree rings and when there's a, an intense fire, it harms the tree ring that year and so on. You can look at the tree ring records and all of these records of what was happening in nature show us massive continental scale fires occurring in the United States, for example, historically, that have always that have always been there. And in fact, there's an entire ecology that adapts to the uh, a forest fire having occurred. There's a whole different ecology of the plants that come in that that are advantaged by the fact that now the territory has been burned in this way there's different insects different animals and then there's and then you come back to the 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 the, the uh, state where you haven't had a fire in a while but fires are a part of nature that and they've always been more intense and we have become obsessed as though they were an unnatural event and they're not um so it, it, that gives you a perspective. Now, in terms of the physics, and I've written about this, I have a, I have a, um, a large paper on forest fires explaining it, them and so on. Um, forest fires will occur in a period of extended drought. And uh, when you have a lot of fuel in the underbrush, a lot of dry wood and very dry weather, there will be fire. Something will ignite it, whether it's lightning or something else. And then if the conditions are such at the same time that you have wind, it can be very extensive and it can be very important. This is happening all the time. There is a strong correlation now. So the question becomes, is there more drought now than there ever was? And you look at, so you look at droughts. And again, historical climatologists who have looked at this seriously, who are um, dedicated to truth, who are independent researchers have all found that there are not more droughts than there ever were. Okay. There's more. It seems the that, only, that word yeah. independent is becoming so more, so, so important just in yeah. the sense of, you know, funding sources and it, 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 you know, I was talking to a friend the other day, I've, I've said it on the podcast a few times, you know, we we should all, you know, when we're giving our research, you know, make sure that everybody is aware exactly where our funding came from uh, in, in what we're doing, uh, because it it seems to be such an ongoing experience that we just discover. Oh, look, like like I read through your bio and I know that you've had to walk away from positions in order to r remain faithful to your pursuit of truth and have a level of independence from the, the, the glob. Um, but everything you're saying here also, again, just makes so much common sense. You know, when you say, look, like uh, we maintain roads and we take care of our forests better. Therefore, you know, it, 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 
it's likely that we're going to manage fires better. If you say, look, uh, that study that, you know, went from eyeballing it to a certain type of satellite lens to new technology, it, it, that makes perfect sense to which no observational scientist should or, or, or should want to deny, like, and it doesn't take everything you've mentioned just takes a common sense analysis of the situation. Right. Well, the authors who wrote that paper, um, they see it as a threat to their careers. If there is a paper that's critical of exactly their methods and so on that gets published in the same top level journal, they would see that as a threat. So they're going to oppose it. Uh, unfortunately, they're going to oppose that. Uh, and their colleagues and their friends and their the editors they're in contact with are going to oppose publication of a, of a counter paper, especially in the same venue, if it's a top tier venue like that so that that there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on the other thing i would say michael is that regarding the independence of research we shouldn't forget that um independence of thinking and independence of researchers is something that varies on the time scale of generations not only is a result of direct funding. Uh, what I mean by that is in, in a period where you're, you're moving more away from democracy and more towards totalitarian values, if we can call them that, or totalitarian system where there's more top-down control, in one of the signs of moving towards totalitarianism is less independence of thought. And that includes in the professional circles. Right. Okay, so there is the, there is far less independence in the science establishment now than when I was in mid career, for example, and um, it gets worse. The, there was a period of great freedom, and in, and that includes intellectual freedom after the Second World War. There was a huge growth. There was uh, a need to build all these institutions. They were attracting professors by offering them tenure. That's when they invented the, the concept of tenure. Um, and there was a lot of growth. And when you have a lot of growth and a lot, there's a lot of ideas and there's more freedom. And then, and then when you decide that the democracy you've created is a threat to your, to your system, you, 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 you roll it back and, and the system becomes more controlled. And so I even lived through a period where at first uh, research grants were intended to give the individual researcher a lot of freedom and then became that they had to be structured around, um, let's say, corporate interests. And you had to have uh, a, a corporate player that was interested in what you were going to do in order to get funding. And so there was a real change between we trust you to look for truth and to have an eye to something that is relevant to society to we're aligning you to serve this interest now. Okay. So people don't realize that the, the most of high technology was publicly funded in, in the early days uh, until the corporations needed much more control over it, uh, tighter control. And then, and they were making enough money from it. And then they would uh, take those patents and, and completely control it and have uh um, uh, intellectual property secrecy uh, protocols and everything. But a, a lot of what we have today in terms of high technology was developed through public funding. And so there, there, there's this changing thing historically as well. So it's, it's even difficult to imagine how independence 
of professional scientists could occur these days. And that's why the, the ones that have remained independent because of their personalities and their character tend to be outcast. They tend to have a harder time to be published. Um, they um, are being let go from their universities and, and institutions. Uh, they're being mistreated in the media uh, and so on, you know, and the COVID period has, has demonstrated this uh, uh, very, very uh, uh, well, you know, that the, 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 the independent thinking MDs and medical researchers are, are being just really badly mistreated and everyone else seems to be completely aligned with this madness. So that is true of global warming as well, of, of climate science as well. There, there was a bunch of independent thing people who were very critical of these ideas when they were first being proposed and eventually they die, uh, they retire, uh, they're forgotten and uh, this becomes the narrative that everyone pushes. Yeah, this idea of independence or peer review really, you know, does hinge upon the individual being willing to follow the observations and not the narrative. And how, you know, I, I know that you're you're basically saying that 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 there's a that there was a time where that was more acceptable. I think, you know, after the second world war, we had seen the manifestation of evil. We had seen the the manifestation of totalitarianism. I think certainly here in the West, uh, you know, you, you had the Europeans who had even been f fleeing the Nazis and, and, and the communists coming here and giving us a, a healthy understanding of why they would even flee to their allied captors rather than be taken by, uh, by the Germans or be taken by the, by the Russians coming in from the East. And, and so that whole understanding would, I think would, would produce a desire for intellectual freedom in the sense it's, of, in, yeah. in the sense of at least we've seen what that's like. And we really, we, 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 we want to avoid it at least for a time. But I appreciated how you described that change. But it, it, there, I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, Michael, and, and you're right. But there's also another dimension to freedom, which is um, periods of freedom, of large freedom like that, are also tied to economic freedom. They really are. Like after the Second World War, the allied countries in the U.S. decided to have economic freedom within the Western world. And there was there was a uh, the, the Bretton Woods Agreement allowed that economic freedom and uh, uh, encouraged it. And so you had freedom was seen as the way to a rapid growth in order to challenge the communist system. OK, you wanted the allies to develop quickly. You wanted Japan that you had taken to develop quickly and to become to, to become a strength in that part of the world. So you offered an economic system and uh and freedoms of your of your professional classes and so on that allowed a rapid development of institutions of, of procedures of everything and it was seen as the most efficient way to do things um once the allies became a threat to the u.s uh itself because they were on a on a path of rapid economic development and that included japan and europe um the bretton woods the u.s unilaterally uh, retracted from the Bretton Woods Agreement and created the first big tectonic shift 
of geoeconomics in which uh, they installed the US dollar as the global currency that was not tied to gold and uh, where they became the, the people printing the global currency and they ran things. And that was the first big acceleration of what we call globalization. That happened in 1971. And then, um, so the U.S. has always wanted to dominate its allies uh, and to be the strength that that represented the the Western world, and to take over the rest of the world. And the, I mean, I I've written about geopolitics, so I could tell you. I, I don't know how far you want to go in that line, but the next big change, tectonic change in geopolitics, which gave us the era that we're in today, was the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. That was a huge change that restructured the world and accelerated globalization again, you see. And then we could talk about that opened up China and that, you know, and we could just go on like that. And that would explain why we need the climate change paradigm today and how it's being used. Okay, so, so all let's, about geopolitics, yeah. Let's put that on hold for part two or part yeah. three. <laughs> Because it, it, sincerely, sure. the, the, these historical developments are very important for us to understand. So I actually want to get there. But today, mm. you know, you at the beginning, you were trying to bring me towards the CO, CO2 discussion. So now if we can help our listeners understand the CO2 issue, if you want to get into some numbers crunching or some examples of how that's being uh, it, itself being manipulated – Let's let's talk about CO two and let's we, we got twenty minutes and let's end with the discussion about uh, our humans who are producing CO two changing our 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 environment so much so that we must walk away from you know from uh, from oil and and move to these renewables and if we can stay on that one then in the next talk. I really would like to get into some of the, to the big geopolitical and economic uh, decisions. Uh, you know, I tend to think things in a moralistic uh, good versus evil world and knowing that there's a bunch of nuance within that. So I would really like you to walk us through the, the, the geopolitical stuff later. CO2. Sure, no problem. I can, I'm used to putting things on hold. <laughs> um, so, the CO2, um, it's, it's, oh, where to start? It's madness. Um, I, as a physicist, have done the calculations myself. I wanted to understand this at the, at the, at the most basic level. So I went in and looked at the radiation physics and calculated for the planet what, how does the surface temperature establish itself and what would theory predict it to be and how does that work? What are all what what what's the basic physics of temperature of the of the surface of the planet? So I looked at it's called radiation balance is the physics you have to use. And so you look at the properties of the surface. Uh, there are two key properties. One is albedo. The other is emissivity. These are properties of how radiation interacts with um, 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 the atmosphere, the clouds, the surface of the planet, depending on if there's vegetation on it and so on. And that, that pro those properties vary 
very strongly with the wavelength of the radiation. So is it predominantly visible light coming in from the sun? And then is it predominantly, if it's predominantly infrared, then escaping from the planet, um, then those fundamental properties of the surfaces and of the substances will change with wavelength. So I looked at all that. I did the calculations uh, from scratch. I've published that. And um, what I found is the same thing that the first people who tried to do this found. And that is that you can double or quadruple the amount of CO2 on the planet in the atmosphere, and it will have virtually no effect on the mean surface temperature. It will be a negligible, really small effect, like half a degree or something. And so you can repeat that calculation, you can find it. And now the thing is, what you find is the reason for that is that the effect saturates. Once you have enough CO2, then there's a phenomenon called optical saturation, which means that if you add more, you don't stop the infrared more. You don't scatter the infrared coming from the surface of the planet more than you did because it was already saturated. The effect was already saturated. So because of that physical optical phenomenon of uh, saturation of the greenhouse effect of the greenhouse gases, once, once you've attained a certain concentration of them, you can't change anything anymore by just adding more of those gases. And so this, this was well known um, from the start. And um, so you, I convinced myself that this couldn't possibly be a problem, that CO2 itself couldn't possibly be a problem. Um, uh, that is the hard science. And the other problem with that calculation is that um, the people that were doing the calculation at first, the first scientists that did this, the climatologists at the Ivy League schools that were doing this at first, they knew they were doing a simple calculation. And the only reason they were doing this particular one with CO2 is because it was easier to do than other things. It was way easier to calculate the impact of doubling the CO2 in the atmosphere than the impact of increasing the amount of water vapor in the atmosphere. Orders of magnitude easier to do the calculation because water vapor can condense out into clouds and it can re-evaporate and it is heterogeneous across uh, in the atmosphere on the planet, whereas CO2 is very uniformly distributed. So the 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 real calculations that are most important of the factors that most affect uh, local climate and local weather, you can't do them. They're too complicated. The thing you can do is to calculate the average effect of increasing the CO2 concentration. So that's the first thing they did. And when they did it, they said exactly that. They said, we're doing this, but it's, you know, be careful. It's a really simple calculation. We can only do it because it is simple and be, you know, don't overinterpret this. And this is what we find. And it's only much later uh, that uh, scientists who were funded to do so redid those calculations and declared that they had, you know, that there was a problem associated with, with, with warming, the small warming that could be predicted in this way. And, and it, that became part of the uh, scientific propaganda, if you like, uh, that, that they were pushing this idea. So I've redone all those calculations. I, I understand the detailed physics of that. Um, it's not an issue. CO2 is not an issue. It's, it's, it's a non-issue. Um, that's the physics of it. Um, Can I ask you a, a very 
you know, simple end user question, even when you say theoretically, if we doubled or tripled the CO2, are we anywhere near doubling or tripling the CO2 in the atmosphere? Like, because even some of our listeners might walk away and go, okay, okay, good. Like, uh, we could get it five times uh, in the next 30 years and we'll just be experiencing smog, but it won't actually affect the, the, the heating. But the flip side of it right. is, is are we even... No, wait, there has uh, been a significant increase uh, in CO2 since the beginning of the industrial era, for example. There has been. But here, here's the thing. Okay, I told you about the calculation because it's something I know and it's something I, I, I intimately know, so I told you about it. But there empirically... If the scientists working on this were honest, this is what you would hear in the media because the experiment has recently been done empirically. During the COVID period, everything was shut down on the global scale and the consumption of fossil fuels dropped significantly. And this is measured and known. And the amount of increase in the CO2, because it's on an increasing slope, there is no detectable impact on the increase of CO2 on the planet from this massive reduction of the use of fossil fuels. So empirically, the experiment's been done. In other words, and I've written about this as well, the fact that CO2 is increasing right now cannot be linked directly to our consumption of fossil fuels. It is a planetary phenomenon there are massive pools of available carbon on the planet in uh, ocean sediments, uh, lacustrine sediments, in the atmosphere itself, in, 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 in decaying organic matter in the forests everywhere. There are these massive global scale exchanges of carbon happening that are, and the mechanisms of control of exchange between those pools that, that, that results in the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere that we measure are largely unknown. And I know I, I studied one of the biggest research grants I ever had was to study the biogeophysics of those processes. So I know what I'm talking about. These processes are largely not known and not known enough to, to, to predict even what the slope of that increase of CO2 is. But what we do know historically is that the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere historically over the, over the time scale that we can measure historically on the planet has varied tremendously and has not driven uh, changes in temperature, but rather has been correlated to, to large changes on the planet. So large changes in atmospheric composition, composition are correlated to large changes on the planet. And there have been large changes on the planet like the, the uh, 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 greening of the planet, uh, overtake of uh, green plants, uh, um, the, the, the appearance of oxygen and different bio, biogeochemical processes that, that, that through evolution, I, I, I don't know if we want to get into the evolution topic, but as a scientist, I uh, tend to believe that the, that the dating of the planet is, is correct and that we're talking about, you know, a billion years or more, four billion years, and that you can actually historically look at the massive changes that occurred over that time as a function of time. I, 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 I do believe that. 
Um, so that would be, a, 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 I don't know if we want to have that discussion. One time I was giving an interview and I talked about 4 billion years of evolution of, of viruses and so on, but we were talking about COVID and it was, it was, a uh, the, the interviewer said, you mean 6,000 years <laughs> because it was, a, <laughs> and I said, okay, we'll leave that one aside. <laughs> I, I, I would say, I, I would sit within that. I, I would sit within that early earth, uh, biblical framework uh however you know adam and eve were created with the appearance of age and again this goes back to the debate of observable science or or metaphysical theory uh and i, I i'd be able to talk about that but observable repeatable science is something that i can sit and go okay let's talk about some of these areas so so yes i would i would believe the origin stories of the book of genesis to being able to date back according to the genealogies and be a young earther. But up until the evolutionary comment, again, everything you're tracking with is this false correlation where you're saying, look, like CO2 has been increasing, but if I'm honest with you, there's big pockets of, of different, uh, uh, different, uh, sources within our planet that would be able to contribute to the rise of CO2 and we'd never be able to measure it. So to be able to yeah, say we, that this we, equals that. The experiment was done. Uh, fossil fuel consumption dropped dramatically and there was no detectable change in the uh, upward trend of CO2 increase that presently we are observing on the planet. And the experiment was done twice in recent times, one uh, related to COVID and one related to the previous economic crash. So there is, there is, there is empirical proof that uh, cutting consumption does not, on the timescale of you know, a year or two, you cannot see any change whatsoever. And the, this, but that, but that, that was, that's expected. Any, any biogeochemist who looks at the planet uh, knows this. This 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 surface uh, activity of humans has no bearing on uh, the composition of the atmosphere of the of the freaking planet. It's a planet. It's huge. So how many volcanic eruptions are going to occur, and and periods of of more volcanoes are going to have a much greater impact? And you can measure it directly and immediately. You can. Look, glaciers are melt more quickly when there are uh, forest fires in Africa that deposit microparticles of soot on the surface of the ice so that the uh, light is absorbed more. You know, there's all kinds of phenomena like that. And, and, and everything can be explained in terms mechanistically like that if you look at it, if you study it. And nothing, none of this narrative of global warming uh, is needed or makes any sense. So that's, that's what I would say. Um, do you want to talk uh, at want... all about um, just a few different areas within the CO2, just to stay within the CO2 mm -hmm. for this, for this dialogue? Cause this is fascinating. And sure. I, I thank you for coming on and having this dialogue. Um, so uh, common thoughts would be that you know, CO2 is massively increasing. You've said there's an increase. Are we talking about the magnitude of times or, or like, are we talking about two to three times oh, or are well, we talking? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite incrementally. Yeah. We're, we're, we're close to having doubled since the, since prior to the industrial era. 
but there's okay. no in what you have to understand is that we have good data for the amount of fossil fuel burning as a function of time and the increase has no relation to that variation so you've got uh, if you if you if you imagine it visually on a graph you've got the increase of co2 here and you've got the the amount of fossil fuel burning which shoots up dramatically like that and there's no blip or anything in the in in the curve you see there's no temporal association there's no temporal correlation between uh fossil fuel consumption by humans and this co2 phenomenon on the scale of a planet in the atmosphere there is no correlation temporally and that as i said has been verified empirically twice in recent years so uh it's just it's just illogical to propose a model that on the face of it does not explain the the most obvious large features of the phenomenon so yeah. uh, maybe in in talking along with this uh so we we we've, we've talked we've tackled two topics the correlation of fossil fuels to co2 uh the 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 lack of temperature warming that is being shot out to us, which would then bring us to, you know, sea levels. So I'll just ask you this, you know, this basic, you know, Twitter question. So I, I saw a great tweet go out about six or seven weeks ago, and it was a, a picture of a, a bunch of different shorelines. Now I get it. Uh, tide coming in, tide coming out. Like there's, there's, there's problems within my own humorous methodology here, but it's like picture of sea level in 1959 picture, same picture of same rock today. And it's like the exact same. So um, that's another narrative being shot us that, that, that sea levels are on the rise. In fact, I, I saw something just yesterday about this. What, do we have any observable scientific things to say about that? Well, it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's the nonsense science. Uh, it's very highly technical. It's funded by NASA and it's nonsense. Uh, you, what, what they're using is, um, uh, satellite, uh, tel telemetry, I think it's called. In other words, they're, they're, they're measuring the, the distance from the satellite to the surface of the water. And they can do that with a lot of accuracy and they're producing graphs of these minuscule changes. We're talking millimeters. You, you have to you have to imagine like waves are the size of meters, and they're looking at an average on the scale of millimeters. Okay, so you can imagine the difficulties in doing this. Okay, so so and and you as you mentioned, there's tides as well and everything. But a scientist that does a spectroscopic measurement or or any kind of measurement like that and is asked to, to look at the data and make graphs of it, and then has to theoretically worry about how to correct it. Is it reliable? What are the sources of error? There's, there's bias enters into that automatically because of your career, because of what you're supposed to find, because of what the, the main narrative is, because of what the funding source is. There's, there's so many places for bias in, a, in reporting data like that in 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 correcting that data so what i have found is that every single time that i look at data that reports these minuscule changes and tries to tell me that they're significant and i look at what they've actually done and how they've done it every single time i've done that in detail i have found 
that the um, that the correction procedures far outweigh the claimed uh, uh, precision that 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 they're that they're stating. Okay, so the uncertainties in in what they did to be able to correct the data and to be able to represent the data uh, to put it on that scale are much greater. Those, the uncertainties in that are much greater than the effect they're trying to illustrate. Can you explain mm -hmm. that term just again? Just uh, uncertainties. Just just they've they've said you know accepting this knowing that we can't quite measure that but we're accepting this is that is that what you mean by the correcting of the uncertainties like well, for okay. example let, a wave uh, is a meter okay let, let let's say let's say uh you're doing this from a satellite and the the physical measurement is an average uh uh average position of the surface of the water at a certain place at a certain time when you fly over and the distance to the satellite. And let's say you can measure that by, by a sophisticated method using a telescope and so on. Okay. Then, uh, um, but the problem is that measurement will enter and will be sent to the station. You know, they, they, they'll, they'll tell you what the value of the measurement is, but that measurement is the distance between the two. However, the satellite is moving in its orbit. And in fact, it's falling to earth. Uh, satellites don't last forever. So you have to correct for that gradual change. But it's also not falling in a regular predicted way because there are variations in the gravitational field and, 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 and the earth is turning as well. And there are there all kinds of things are affecting gravity. I mean, there, there, there's uh, bigger ice caps in the winter. There's uh, depressed, uh, dep depressed places on Earth that come down because of that snow and ice that is now uh, in way. So, so gravity is being affected. So you have to, you have to correct for that. How do you correct for it? Well, it's really complicated. If you don't want it to correct exactly, you'd have to measure it first. You'd have to know it. You don't know it. You only know it theoretically and on average based on some preliminary measurements. And so. Every time you want to correct what that distance is, you have to take into effect all the things that might affect that distance, okay? So, so at the particular time when you're measuring the distance uh, of, of the average water, uh, of, of, of the position of the water on average, was there wind? Were waves higher? How do you correct for that? Okay, well, we have an indicator, an independent measurement of wind, so we have a model for how big the waves are, would be, and then we have a model for how the choppiness will affect the average position as measured by this technique on this telescope, okay? So we have to factor that in. Now, every one of these corrections, and there's dozens and dozens of them, um, involve uncertainties. You can't actually know exactly how to make that correction. And every time there's an uncertainty, you make a judgment call about how you're gonna deal with that uncertainty. What is your guesstimate gonna be? What is the uh, theory going to be that, to make that correction every time you have to decide. We're presenting this, even though it could be here. Like Denny, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah. but even as we're talking, you're visually going like this, right? You're, you're visually saying yeah. like this. So first of all, we've been talking about they, that they're blowing a narrative out of proportion where they might be finding millimeters, uh, and making not, it seem like it's much bigger. They're finding millimeters. They're reporting millimeter changes. Yes, okay? sorry. And, uh, and I in understand order that. to report them, they have to first obtain them. And in order to obtain them, the raw number is a physical measurement of a certain distance. 
But that yeah. distance is not purely in an absolute way the position of the water. It is a relative position to the satellite. And so, and then, but also the distance is not just putting down a meter stick and 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 getting it right. There's it, there, there's uncertainties that depend on the choppiness of the water, the humidity of the air, the wind at the time. All these things have to be corrected in the hope, and they have to be corrected in a systematic way so that when you produce the graph, you get something that is regular and not all over the place. If you were doing it honestly, you would see a scatter plot. You would see, you if you were doing it honestly, the graph would not be a regular increase. It would be all over the place because it, you would see the true uncertainties that you haven't fudged coming out in the result. Uh, you know, so I mean, and 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 that is true of temperature. That is true of distance. That is true of anything that they want to model where they have an agenda, and they give you this small effect, and they tell you it's true, and it's the it's evidence that the world is falling apart. Every time they do that, you have to look at what are, what are they actually doing? And what you find is they're measuring, they're trying to measure, they're claiming to measure these incredibly small effects. And in, they, they achieve uh, uh, data that they are going to report to you by a complex procedure uh, that involves many, many layers of corrections. And when you have a complex procedure with many, many layers of corrections and you ask hired professionals to do it so that you can show this graph at the end, you have, a, you have an ideal situation to introduce bias and you cannot avoid it. Uh, and, and, you, and they don't want to avoid it. In fact, they want to produce a certain result. And, you know, I'm not at liberty to, to share privileged information that I have of scientists actually doing this, but I know personally of cases where I know the names of people, I know what the data was, and I know that they manipulated the data. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, and you know what, we, we, this is a good time to, for us to wrap up our first talk. Um, I wanted to show everybody what we were getting at in this, uh, you've been helping people by, by doing this a lot. And, mm -hmm. and I wanted to help everybody understand. So look, everybody, we we're talking about this, that they're claiming is the change at very least. This helps you understand you know, they're, they might be trying to make it out to be this, well, well, look, look, look. but then just as we're, far we're as, just as far wait, as our, wait, I got to say this, we're okay. looking at a millimeter change on a surface with waves of a meter. No, that's what I was getting at. But, like but, but anybody's it's a millimeter to... change in a distance that is kilometers, the distance to the satellite. Okay. Yeah, no, I know. The that's... satellite is, is vibrating. It's turning and, and it's in an orbit that is that is changing that's what we're talking about like like most people that are um uh, practically minded or that have some engineering experience or any anything with technology they would intuitively know that this is a a, a very tenuous thing to do right? well you say very tenuous and i was trying to get at the point of like just go down to the just go down to the water and just put your toes in the water and just imagine someone trying to measure a millimeter of difference. Even when you were doing this, it was helpful for people to go, wait a minute. I've stood on the, I've stood on, like, I'm, I can see the Great Lakes right here. I can see Lake Ontario right here. You know, 
today it looks pretty calm, not a whole lot of haze. I probably go down and find little rip ripplets. Yesterday there were white caps, you know, everywhere. To 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 go even here would be something. If they're trying to present this, mo- the word that most of us would use would be absurd, uh, yeah. not just tenuous. In the sense of I'm driving along the road, and I saw a penny. I was driving at 250 kilometers an hour, and I tried to read the date on the penny as I was driving by, except the penny was floating in a puddle and pennies don't float in a puddle. So the penny was on the bottom of a puddle. Like it just to, to make such absolute claims is not just, you know, tenuous in the sense of the observation itself. It's, it's actually just arrogance. And if you're making such an absolute claim, it would have to be a, a measure of well, let's let's do let's do a thought experiment. Let's go back to a period where you could sit in a room with the top geoscientists of the time, but they were all they all developed their careers in the 1950s and 60s and 70s when there was still independent thought and they still had real arguments with each other and differences of opinion and they were they were they were uh, they knew what an empirical measurement was. Let's go into a room of these expert geoscientists and ask them what are the biggest effects that can uh, affect the sea level on the planet? None of them will say CO2. None of them will say, oh, we have to worry about the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere. They will all give you answers of the largest effects that they have seen in their decades of research that have nothing to do with the atmospheric composition and have everything to do with plate tectonics, uh, uh, loading of, of ice and snow, um, um, uh, you know, uh, big changes such as, such as uh, ice ages and things like that. They will all tell you about these things and they will, there will be no talk of uh, the, the uh, greenhouse effect and CO2 in the atmosphere, virtually none, in terms of the driving forces that could dramatically change the sea level on the planet. It's just, and they would tell you, if you told them, now go into the future, this is what the scientists are saying and and read their papers, they would say, oh my God, they've entered into a crazy world. They're now in the future, they're talking nonsense. That's what they would say. Well, I I want to end on that point because that's literally, I think, how most of my my listeners feel about just about everything. You know, uh, natural immunity I, th- I think people used to talk about that. Now you don't talk about that anymore. Uh, we, we've entered into a world of medical absurdity in, in many respects. So let's end on that note. Denny, thank you for coming on. Thank you for having this conversation. I look forward to having more. If you're willing to come on more, I look forward to digging into this further uh, because we're just, I'm trying to dig down for truth in this midst of absurdity. And yes. Everything you've been saying, uh, as as far as you know, just some of these very simple ways of of admitting potential error or unknowns, uh, has been so helpful for our listeners to go away and go, oh yeah, okay, that's how they're that's how they're making that claim, and look at all of the work that went into uh, either fab- fabricating it or at least presenting it in a way that's far more absolute than it is. So, thank you for coming on, everybody. Uh, this is going to be a controversial one. 
uh, like every other episode I do. So please share this out. And uh, Denny, where can people get your writings and your resources? Oh, I have a main website. Uh, it's Denis Rancourt. So like, you know, D-E-N-I-S-R-A-N-C-O-U-R-T dot C-A. And everything's there. I really appreciate that. And we'll send our listeners over and looking forward to talking to you again. I would love that. Awesome. Thank you very much. I, I, love, okay. you, I love your approach, Michael. I, 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 feel, I feel your search for truth. Well, thank you. Because I, sometimes I feel like on this podcast, I'm just a bumbling idiot asking, asking people questions that I don't often get to ask. And so sometimes it's hard for me to always be in that spot of saying, okay, tell me something else I don't know. But it's really important right now because I don't think in the categories, the scientific categories that you think in. And so when an expert starts speaking with a level of authority and experience, it, and in my mind, I just, you just, you just start really leaning into, wow. Uh, it's, it's, most of it comes back to common sense observation, but I get this wow feeling of, okay, I understand why things are being manipulated the way they are. So uh, as a scientist, that's been, I've been dedicated to truth all my life and I've been really seeking it and without compromise. And I am horrified by the absurd world that we live in, in terms of the science that's being put out there. It's just, I'm, I'm like in a nightmare. It's incredible. I, I, I hear your pain. Uh, I know many other professors are feeling exactly how you're feeling. I look forward to talking about uh, maybe some more science first and then getting into the geopolitics of it. I really look forward to that. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. <laughs>